Hey everyone, producer Rob popping in before the episode to say thank you so much for helping us reach and pass our goal during Max Fun Drive. We made it, so be on the lookout for that pork chop feed. Thanks everyone, here's the episode. Today's film is about a conflict that is transmogrified into an asymmetric nuclear cold war that is still with us today. But at one time, the Korean War was a boots on the ground hot conflict that we came very close to losing. Operation Chromite was a Hail Mary maneuver that General Douglas MacArthur oversaw to reinvade the Korean Peninsula and cut off the supply lines of Kim Il-sung's armies, which had nearly run the Allies and the anti-communist South Koreans into the sea. In today's film, we see MacArthur, one of our most colorful generals, portrayed by Liam Neeson, an actor with a very particular set of skills. Skills he has acquired over a very long career. Skills that make him a nightmare for a movie like this. He's a big important figure in the history this film portrays, and if you're in the US, you might have seen posters and trailers that imply that he's the star of the film. But he's really just a prestigious B story that seems to be present to make this film marketable to Western audiences. Because this is a Korean film, with a Korean cast, and most of it is in Korean. Our main character Jang is the ex-communist leader of a crack infiltration squad who we meet on a train headed for Incheon. Using concertina wire and the elements of surprise, they murder and then impersonate a communist officer and his retinue who are being stationed in Incheon on some kind of inspection mission. The primary bad guy is Senior Colonel Lim, who has close ties to the fearless leader Kim Il-sung. He has maps and information about how the Incheon Harbor has been mined to prevent amphibious attacks and our intrepid spies need to extract that information to transmit it to the Americans who would very much like to invade Incheon. Almost everything these spies do goes badly, and we're left wondering if these mishaps are historical or whether they're just necessary antecedents to the frenetic action sequences that this film is replete with. Through haplessness and ineptitude, characters are killed, and some are captured and tortured. What seems like a perfectly good plan to steal the intelligence crumbles and falls apart about halfway through the film, and the team becomes more and more desperate as Zero Hour approaches. It all leads to the inevitable landing in which almost every character in the squad sacrifices himself to make successful the invasion. This film was made for the Korean market but with an eye on palatability to audiences in the US, so it's interesting to see the depiction of MacArthur as eccentric and bullheaded but ultimately super capable and great. And the Kim loyalist evil colonel being super good at his job and suspicious of spies the moment they show up, while at the same time, Jang and all of the South Korean good guys are depicted as well-meaning and earnest, but kind of bad at their job. The film makes the case for them having just barely done this one all-important mission, and that if they hadn't, the whole invasion might have been a disaster. From 2016 and directed by John H. Lee, What MacArthur wants is to be the president. That's why he needs a miracle of 5,000 to 1. Today on Friendly Fire, Battle for Inchon, Operation Chromite. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast, where the coke is thick, but the ideology is thicker. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. A little callback. 
do a different war movie. I really miss that war movie, watching this one. <laughs> well, which which war movie are we talking about? You don't remember the uh, the Coke Thick Jag that we went on for uh, Doctor Strangelove? <laughs> I'm I'm having trouble remembering earlier this morning. I'm not I'm not <laughs> very good at at callbacks to our show to six months ago. <laughs> Coke Thick. Yeah, Greatest Generation is almost entirely just callbacks now. So, <laughs> well, you guys are young and you have elastic brains. You remember things that happen. You don't wet the bed anymore. John, I'm always totally dumbfounded at how you, like, how great your memory is when we're recording this show. Because you're, I mean, I write, I have to write a bunch of notes down to remember ideas of things to talk about when I'm watching these movies. And and you, uh, you sit there and and have thoughts fully formed just fly out of your mouth. It's amazing. I think maybe it's that my brain doesn't record bad podcast bits. <laughs> To recall in place of like new jokes. <laughs> I know that's kind of crazy. Crazy to you guys. <laughs> your your personal flight data recorder only records the good stuff. Yeah, it only records forward, never backward. <laughs> wow. But hey, look, I don't want to, you know, like n- let nobody tell you that you're doing the internet wrong, you guys. <laughs> you're you're amazing. I love everything. I celebrate your entire catalog. Wow, <laughs> such sincerity. Guys, I don't want to cut to the ending too soon, but I'm starting to get to a point where I could form a theory that goes like any war film made within the last 10 years that has an unnecessarily an unnecessary colon in it is probably going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, why is this movie not just called Battle for Inchon? What is it called? It's Battle for Inchon, colon, Operation Chromite, which is a lot like USS Indianapolis, Men of Courage, which was also a notably terrible war film with a colon in it. If you had told me yesterday that Pranica's colon theory would have something to do with war movies. <laughs> I think people will re- prefer my Three Temples theory to my colon theory. Yeah, I, I, now I'm looking back at the Three Temples theory and really have, feeling reminiscent. You didn't know how good you had it back then. No, that seems like a that's a very uh, Steven Seagal technique, right? To 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 colonize a film, to put a, to put a colon an unnecessary colon in the middle of it. If there's one thing Ben hates, it's colonizers. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steven Seagal is the unnecessary colon in the center of all of his films. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Where did this film go wrong? You think? Because the story of this is great. Like on paper, this is the Magnificent 15. And and seeing this perspective from the other side of the bay, I think is fascinating. Well, one thing that struck me while I was watching it is that this movie doesn't feel like it's really for an American audience. Like Liam Neeson being stapled onto it feels like somebody had an idea halfway through like oh what if we tried to also you know get this a a wide release in the united states forgetting that people from america won't watch movies with subtitles but like even just that first scene with the where they take over the train car like i had no idea who was who or what was what like the the meaning of you know like looking at those fatigues that they were wearing i didn't assume anything about them i didn't 
I didn't know what side they were on or what those uniforms represented because it's just not I'm I'm not used to looking at that stuff, you know. The commandos on the train were dressed in disguise as North Koreans and were through the entire film, so yeah. Anybody would be confused because there is no uniform difference between the good guys and the bad. Right. I I, I, I thought that, I, but I think that like if I was Korean, the the uniforms would be obvious to me as North Korean. I I interrogated this a lot as I was watching it. (laughs) Mm. How much of this is like Korean home market stuff that's, that would be understandable to a, to someone in Korea, but not to us. And how much of it was just crazy filmmaking. And I feel like some of the mistakes that were made were things we've seen before, like a commando team of eight guys that are not very properly introduced or distinguished from one another. Like we're right. in, a, we're in a little bit of a tricky situation, right? Because if you are looking at eight Korean guys from our perspective, it, it's not, you know, if we, if we look at this film and say, I couldn't tell anybody apart, that might be a racial problem, right? Or we might just not be able to, to see Asian faces with the same kind of clarity that someone in Asia would. But right. we see this in movies that we watch all the time with white actors, where it's just like, who was that guy again? Yeah. He's the one. He's the one that has the pocket knife, or is he the one that has keeps a feather in his wallet? Yeah, the the slightly unshaven, brown-haired white guys keep dying, and I can't remember which one is which. It's interesting that like the point of a uniform many times is to anonymize the individual, and it cuts against the idea of film study. Right. In an interesting way. <laughs> but in this movie, yeah. we see a lot of that character development come way late in the film where it's like, oh, all of a sudden we're getting backstory about this guy. Like the two, I think the the relationship between the one guy that called the other one young master, where it was clearly like there was a class issue between them. The younger yeah. guy was an aristocrat and the other guy couldn't get past it. But God, that wasn't filled in for us. Like that would have been a very interesting one minute long, you know, just sort of plot thickener. Yeah, you're truly meant to feel something at, at the end for them. And it's very difficult to feel that. Yeah, they, they overcome this this class issue, but but we were just left in the dark through the whole thing. Like who is the young master and why? Anyway, so I, 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 I was really trying to make sure that what was confusing about the movie was separate from what would be confusing about a movie in Korean to us not being Korean. And I think there's plenty to interrogate. Well, there's another element that I wanted to touch on, which is the kind of the Christianist aspect of it. Like the, the movie really felt like it was dripping in pro Christian, almost propagandistic messaging like any time, you know, they're sitting around a table with a bunch of nurses, like somebody's asked to give a full-throated support of the idea of killing a close family member if they proclaimed belief in Christianity or whatever. And uh, that also felt a little bit, you know, like I might expect to see that in a movie that Kirk Cameron made but not something that Hollywood made. Do you know what I mean? Was this related to any of those productions through the <laughs> company that made this film? Are you saying, is this a secret secret uh, yeah. Jesus movie? 
Well, I, I think it is a very Jesus-y movie. Striper Productions. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, in the context of Korea, I feel like that means something really, really different, you know? Because, you know, it's two countries where they have a common history that, you know, got cut in half. And the South must have to produce all kinds of things like this to kind of reinforce what it what its ethos is, just as we know North Korea does. But... I just feel like I'm not exposed to as much of of it, you know? Like, North Korea's propaganda is such a curiosity because it seems like it comes from a different planet almost. But this felt a little bit propagandistic almost in that way, you know? Like the other side of that coin, maybe? It's it's weird because in all the movies that we've watched about communism... (laughs) The... Gesundheit. The, uh... One of the biggest effects of the early communist days in any one of these countries was the outlawing of religion or the suppression of religion. And I think we we haven't seen it really in any movie we've watched about the Soviets. It is present in Vietnam movies because you see the Catholics uh, in Heaven and Earth, which we watched just recently. There's a huge distinction between the Catholics who are the Southerners and the and the um, assimilated ones, and the Buddhists. And it isn't as clear that the North Vietnamese are anti-religion, although they would have been. In this one, this is probably the clearest, that the, the character development of the, of the North Koreans as being strident, stridently Leninist. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, the Chinese, I think, were... Maybe there wasn't as much Christianity in mainland China. Korea was more Christianized. Certainly is now. It's an interesting observation. I sensed it too, although I didn't feel it as strongly as you did as a as a like a propagandistic element. I'm surprised to hear it, Ben, and I'm glad to hear it because that part flew right over my head. I just saw these scenes as a what wouldn't you sacrifice for your country type of nationalistic pressure on an individual. Like, And those scenes are so often demonstrated in front of a table full of people, right? It's never just two people sitting across a desk and one person asking the other, would you shoot your uncle? This is happening <laughs> at like a dinner party where your answer yeah. is being scrutinized by... Uh, your coworkers and and people who you work for, so the the pressure of that moment is far different. That's a very like uh, the movies that we've watched about resistance, you know, underground resistance movements. Like people are always being asked to kind of like publicly perform their right. affiliation to the cause or whatever. <laughs> So Comrade Lim is absolutely the most charismatic person in the film by far. And he makes... Including Liam Neeson. Right. And he makes a very persuasive case for his worldview throughout the film. Like, we're looking at Comrade Lim and saying, like, here is a, a, a southern version of a brainwashed North Korean he's way more charismatic than that. It was unclear to me throughout the movie where whether or not he was kind of the hero. He certainly was the bad guy, but he was also so much more, I don't know, not just glamorous, but clever. 
Like he was on to the plot from the beginning. What's funny is this is a plot movie, but every single one of their plots went haywire in the first two seconds. And yeah, it they just, totally suck at raids. They do, and they just they suck at raids, and every raid turned into a shootout and a barely, you know, like a, a, a totally shitty escape plan. The only one that works is the first one. Yeah. Right. And you think, like, oh, there's going to be so many cool, like, moves. And it's nobody's the Peter gotta... principle of raids, though, right? You nail that first one, and they got a promotion into a raid they couldn't possibly pull off. <laughs> hey, speaking of failing up, uh, I feel like we should address why the show sounds a little different this week. Where are you guys currently recording from? Uh, we are sitting in my uncle's uh, rented house in Kihei in Maui. Adam and his wife are vacationing on the other end of the island, but they took, uh, they saddled up a burrow and <laughs> made the long trip down here to Kihei. And we're recording in a very high ceilinged mid-century beach house. And our tech is so hard scrabble <laughs> that basically we've got wires daisy chained all around. Adam's. You guys uh, forgot to fly Rob's, 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 Rob's out for your vacations. Big mistake by me, yeah. <laughs> Adam's mic is plugged into the microwave. <laughs> so hopefully this will be salvageable. Such is our commitment to the viewers of Friendly Fire that we work on vacation. So the the raids are like, like they're, they have impersonated a, like an inspector and his staff, right? Right. Of, of North Korean... They murder the actual guy. Yeah. Two-star who got murdered was Comrade Park. The guy who's impersonating him is Captain Zhang Haksu. Yeah. They're there to gather the critical information that General MacArthur needs to invade Incheon. Am I pronouncing that right this time? Yes. <laughs> Obviously, uh, aren't aware of the metric system in Korea. Otherwise, that would be called something else, right? Oh, it'd be called <laughs> meter son, meter yeah. chan. Yeah, yeah, that's a terrible joke. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's like a Ben Harrison caliber joke. Yeah, like the every time they try and spirit these uh, these plans out of the thing, it goes terribly. Yeah, and and I and I I kept feeling like it was partly how clever Comrade Lin was, how much he immediately smelled a rat from the beginning. Yeah, he, he was suspicious of exactly what was going on the second he met them, right? Yeah, he never fully was bamboozled. He always had the confidence to make you feel like maybe he was gaslighting them. He seemed yeah. like maybe he was. It, this was all an elaborate trap he was laying. Yeah, I mean, like within as paranoid a system as North Korea is famous for, Lim has a fucking has fucking balls of steel to like pull a pistol on the guy that is claiming to be Park so that he can, you know, push his collar aside to see if he has the scar that Park is famous for having. That's the confidence right? you get with rank though, right? If you've got two more stars than the guy you're pulling the gun out on, then that plays. That big star energy. Yeah. <laughs> Here here's the problem with the stars. In the ranking system of the North Korean army then and now, it's not like in America where you get one star, two star, three star, four star, and that's all the generals that you would encounter. 
it's one of those ranking systems where the bat the color of the background of the epaulette changes the meaning of the number of stars so we've got a two-star guy with a gold epaulet working with a five-star guy with a black epaulet. And it's not that they are both big generals, right? They are, um, I mean, there are ranks in the North Korean army that are like Captain Colonel General and General <laughs> Captain Colonel. It's, I couldn't tell who was ranking who throughout that whole thing. And it didn't, it was never clear. And I don't think it was ever made clear. Because if the inspector is really there with the authority to inspect this guy's works, he's not, you know, he was never, no one was ever given an order. Between those two guys, no one ever gave anybody else an order. It was all like, so, Captain Park, you say that you are going to Fez, but I know you're not going to Fez. But in fact, I know you are going to Fez. It's like, what are these guys mostly just take a lot of meetings together? <laughs> they do. <laughs> you gonna get the check this time? Well, you are the four star. But you drank three bottles of, of soju and I only drank one. <laughs> are you guys making a Sopranos reference right now? That's pretty good. I just Googled North Korean generals and I found a picture of a bunch of North Korean generals lined up where they have so many medals on their jackets that they've had to go down under their pants yeah. for some of the for some of the medals. The great thing about North Korean generals is that their uh, uniforms are so badly tailored that <laughs> they all look I mean I think it's like Donald Trump suits the style is that they be that they fit badly. You want a lot of color separation. Is there a challenge coin analog to the pants medal? Because if <laughs> and when we ever come up with a friendly fire challenge coin, I figure ours would be like the pants. The coin. pants medal? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing to think that in that in Korea, the idea that generals would... Oh, you know what? I think that the, I think that the picture of them with medals on their pants is photoshopped. Oh, is it? Yeah, I think that's somebody's very hilarious joke. I'm almost oh. positive that the Friendly Fire challenge coin would be a button expander for pants that are too tight. <laughs> <laughs> Lord knows I need that. <laughs> I had I had one of those for my for my shirt collars. Like my collars never fit because my neck is so big. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. 
take yourself to Apple Podcasts, you know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight, a great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. The longer I go in any show without re- referencing Liam Neeson, the better. He, <laughs> the he really, you are. He really brings his full Liam Neesonness to the role of Douglas MacArthur. I feel like he's going through something in this as an actor. Like something's wrong with him, or he's sick. He's talking like he's got a loose dental implant. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was doing uh, his walking impression. Do you think that's what it was? I think once he heard yours, he never wanted to do his anymore. <laughs> he turned his walking impression into plowshares. <laughs> I um, feel like if you tell Liam Neeson to give neutral effort to his performance, it would be better than what he decided to give this. Maybe the the most distracting part is the way they combed his hair, which stops being an issue about halfway through when he starts wearing the hat, but... Real bad. Well, I mean, MacArthur wore his hair that way. Gross. <laughs> he, You're not going to be president with a hairstyle like that. I mean, we only elect great hairstyled presidents, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have to have really plausible hair. <laughs> yeah, he definitely had shoe polish hair. I, I wonder how much, um, how much our feeling about how MacArthur was is, is related to our feeling about Gregory Peck's MacArthur. I don't know if you guys have strong associations with Gregory Peck as MacArthur, but he made a pretty lasting impression with his MacArthur impression. Oh boy, what movie is that? Have we watched it yet? We haven't, no. It's a little movie you might have heard of called MacArthur. Starring oh, yeah. Gregory Peck. Is it Peck. even on the list? Does it have an exclamation point at the end like McClintock? No, it doesn't. And there's there's no colon in it either. But MacArthur... John, this movie is not even on our list, I don't think. You're You're kidding. I guess it must have gotten bumped by Space Warriors 2, Revenge of the Boogaloo. <laughs> I added like 50 movies to our list over the last couple of days, so oh, I'll, uh, I'll make sure to add that one as well. But Douglas MacArthur himself had a comb over that started right above his right ear and went over <laughs> to his left ear. So that maybe was the most historically accurate part of Liam Neeson's performance. <laughs> Okay. He got the sunglasses right. I retract my complaint. (laughs) The hairstyle equivalent of pants medals. Why did you volunteer for this operation? Maybe you have a filmmaking take on this, but one of my major complaints was that I felt like there were too many cameras. They They were cutting between what seemed to me to be 11 cameras anytime anything happened. It was like, and now there's the camera from behind his ear. And now there's the camera that's like in his shirt pocket. And now there's the camera from over here. Like I couldn't ever settle into one viewpoint because there was so much fast cutting between different to different perspectives. And I don't know what that is, but it feels like a modern problem. I think that's symptomatic of digital filmmaking where the cost to have multiple camera angles is fairly trivial compared to if you're running film. You can... Ha- both shoot a scene from multiple angles at the same time, but also, you know, reset and and set up for a new shot quite a bit more quickly than you used to be able to. It was meant to convey a certain 
electric energy or like dynamism or kineticism to the thing. But yeah. I just, I just found that it was, um, it was just a blur of dark. When many of your scenes are, are set at dinner tables or slow moving train cars or what have you, I think the, the pressure is on you know, like, how do you create stress from those environments? Yeah. And I think that also like number of camera angles is as sort of increasing your production value, like the more camera angles, the more production value. That's maybe something that will change now that like a whole new generation of filmmakers is starting to get projects made that is used to shooting on digital and learned on digital. Um, you know, like like maybe maybe there will be a reaction against that, but I think that that the temptation is always like more more is better and when you're shooting also like having a lot of coverage gives you a lot of outs like if a performance isn't that good but you can cut away or cut to behind the person's head you can you can save your movie if you have really good coverage you know yeah it feels like a thing that maybe it's an uh, an embarrassment of riches um yeah well it's important to remember that as adam said we're trying to make a lot of excitement out of some dinner table conversations because this entire film is about a team of guys trying to get a map. <laughs> That's one of the five missions in this film, though. Like, it's it's first it's infiltration, and then it's get the map, and then it's kidnap Ryu, to get and the then map. it's take the lighthouse, and then it's detonate the dynamite and secure the beach. I didn't understand why they needed the lighthouse. I got the, exp uh, the detonating the dynamite, and that seemed like a last-minute thing. Like they didn't realize it was there. I got that, but it seemed to make the case that the lighthouse was going to be the light by which the yeah. invasion would take place, which is not how lighthouses work. <laughs> right, because the light is constantly moving. I kept waiting for him to jam the stick in there and then point the light down on the beach. Wasn't that the plan? You got to throw your sabot into those gears. <laughs> And then the whole, then that the last tension of the movie where the entire invasion force is waiting with their engines in neutral outside the, the break while MacArthur scans the horizon for a flare saying, what, all is clear? The North Korean army is still waiting for you in force there. The flare is not saying the coast is clear. If that one guy doesn't get that flare off, the whole thing is off. The flare was... was was nuts. I mean, this kind of turned the tide of the Korean conflict, right? This invasion of Incheon, yeah. So, walk me through the history of it. Like, well, so the reason there's a North Korea and a South Korea is that at the end of, like, Korea was occupied by Japan uh, during the World War II, and so at the end of the war, there was a similar partition of it, just like there was of Germany where even though it wasn't a thing where the Russians and the Americans invaded Korea and partitioned it down the middle, they did partition it down the middle after the war just as a kind of like this was something that happened at the Potsdam Conference, a spoils of war thing. And so starting in 45, there was a North Korea and a South Korea, and they were ruled by two different, you know, the Soviets brought socialism to the to the north, they were both sort of poised already to have um, 
to have this conflict, but the U.S. and the South Koreans didn't think that there was any real threat from North Korea because at this stage, global communism was still a single animal. The, the Soviets and the communist Chinese, who, again, were brand new in China um, in, in terms of like ruling the whole country, right? Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist Chinese had just been pushed out to Formosa and the Chinese, you know, under Mao were were uh, just get, getting a foothold in China. But from the West perspective, we thought all communists were the same. And so we thought North Korea was a Soviet puppet. The Soviets would never risk invading South Korea because it would spark World War III. So there just wasn't any American army really to speak of there. Because it just, from our perspective, like global politics-wise... Like the Chinese and the Soviets and the North Koreans, like they were considered a threat, but a global threat, not a local threat. One of the big tensions in the American military quarter of this movie is whether MacArthur is doing his D-Day at Incheon for like how showy it is. Like it's like a flashy place to invade because it's dangerous and crazy to do it there. It's shock and awe with ladders. but it worked in real life it was just that crazy and what he did was he did an end run the 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 north koreans invaded with help from the soviets they pushed the south korean and american troops all the way down to the bottom of the peninsula there was you know they were days away from being completely defeated and then macarthur comes in on the side with this like big hook maneuver and cuts off a huge portion of the North Korean army south of Incheon, and they just surround him and capture him, and and then you know pushed him all the way back across the line. And MacArthur was ready to go all the way to Beijing. It was a it was a bold military maneuver from a guy. It would have been great for him politically to take over China. <laughs> yeah, it would have. <laughs> he says so many things in this movie that feel like were probably just copy pasted from like a memoir or something or the movie the Gregory Peck movie. <laughs> yeah. Like like I think it's when they're waiting for that flare to go up and and he just starts kind of like talking about like oh like I chose to live as though I'm never going <laughs> to die because that's like the way that's the way you never age and it's like I just wanted somebody else on the bridge of that ship to turn to him and say Nobody asked you about that at all. Yeah, just apropos of nothing. (laughs) Well, and what's crazy is I think that even downplays the amount of corny, cheesy nut job uh, that MacArthur really was. Everything, (laughs) everything that guy said was said in that tone of like, you know, he was so self-mythologizing, so self-lionizing. Wow. Uh, that he, everything, you know, it was all like epigrams. Is that why he wasn't a viable presidential candidate? Like, did that not translate into politics the way he had hoped? Oh, I think it did. I, I, I don't think he really was serious about running for president. I think he wanted to be emperor. <laughs> and <laughs> Emperor of China, once he made it through. He basically was emperor of Japan after the war. I think he just thought that he was one of these characters that just thought he had transcended the rules and now got to make his own rules 
That was why when, when Truman fired him, it was such a, like it was a shot heard around the world. Nobody could believe it. It was a great moment in American history, actually, because Truman was this sort of wimpy seeming president that didn't have a lot of, he wasn't macho in a time when macho really mattered. And he took down this guy that was like the biggest deal, the most swaggering um, military figure still on the scene. And there, and it was a, I think it was a vote of confidence in America felt around the world because how, how many other countries have a democratic system strong enough that you could take you know that I mean, the, there are a lot but of countries. You could dismiss a general this powerful. Yeah, there are a lot of countries in the world that are being ruled by lieutenant colonels that staged a, a coup. But here, this guy with with his hat weighted down with gold gets <laughs> uh, gets brought home. Pants medals are no defense against a commander in chief. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, he gets brought I mean, home, and and the and the I think the attitude of the man on the street at the time was that we should go to China. Right. It wasn't that he got brought home because he was unpopular and doing a bad job. People agreed with him. That was what was what made the move so strong. This movie is like incredibly lionizing of him. Also, he he gets the hero shot so many times. Yeah. One would assume in watching it that through his dialogue, it's making him look wimpy and self mythologizing the way that John was saying. But like, that's not what the movie is trying to do. It's the consequence of his dialogue, but it's not intended. Yeah. I think this is a thing that we've, we've seen too before. When you're, when you're making a home country produced movie in a country that was a kind of a player in a global political strategy, right? Like the Korean aspect of this movie is that they were on a mission but the mission was being run by an American general. The invasion was really an, an, an American invasion. And like I, I feel like this sort of, when we watch these movies about the resistance in France or in the Netherlands, they are, they're writing or they're telling the story of their role, but it was a small role in a much bigger game. And they aren't really the main players or the heroes of it. They're, they're carving out their own heroic story, but in a, in a smaller context. Yeah, it's, it's a very weird feeling to watch a movie produced in another country for that country's, you know, movie-going public that treats an American general as such a, as such a big deal, you know. And I think in South Korea today, the young people, the progressive young South Koreans have do not lionize MacArthur. They feel maybe somewhat predictably that American imperialism is the is the enemy of good. The problem in Korea is that you have right across the border a daily reminder of what the alternative was. Right. So it's hard to I think it's hard to tell the story in a way that that pictures or or posits the American effort there as being like the the worst possible scenario because the worst possible scenario is to be in North Korea. If you're making a movie like this by Koreans for Koreans, then why even give us MacArthur as played by Liam Neeson? 
Do you need him to get the money to make the movie? One million times I do not know. <laughs> it's the, the, it's the, such a mystery. The mission would have worked just fine if we had never had Liam Neeson or any American in the movie. It would have been right. a better mission movie. Yeah. It's, it's weird to focus, though, on this mission because it's a pretty uncinematic tale. It's all about, like, basically getting the map to the minefield. The, the getting the map is the entire first half of the movie, and it goes very badly. You know, two guys get shot up and fall out a window, and the map burns to a crisp. And then, like... It's the next quarter getting that the guy who who did who put all the all the harbor mines out there and knows where they are and doing the crazy skyhook thing where they they you know wrap him up and send him to the Americans. That was exciting. <laughs> that was like the best part of the movie, right? Like so much like done way better than the Batman movie that had that technology in it. Yeah, a lot of the action scenes from this film look like they were cut scenes from Command and Conquer. You remember that video game, Ben? <laughs> I did. Did not look great, but the the skyhook for sure. We haven't seen the, uh, the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets, yet, but there's a pretty good skyhook scene in that movie too. No kidding. It seems like it would be a neck breaker as soon as the hook catches your line. The implication from this film is that you're screaming on your way up, right? I think the real... In this movie, they just had some, like, rope that they got from a barn. Yeah. <laughs> I think the real skyhook, there was some kind of elasticity built into it where the plane grabs the rope and it stretches a little bit before it grabs you. This was seriously just, like, wrap him up in some wagon rope. Well, you know... Hemp is a, is an amazing material. That's true. It's very elastic. <laughs> if you're gonna go out, though, I mean, I don't want to be. I don't want to be tortured on the ground. Give me the sky hook. I think. Well, let's talk about the special effects because they were poor. Uh, I mean, I think that sums it up pretty well. There's a lot of shots of uh, Liam Neeson standing in front of a green screen, and then they've comped in a harbor full of ships as far as the eye can see behind him. Those scenes of the ships in the storm, <laughs> like they yeah. didn't even do the thing where they compensate for the dimension of water so that it doesn't look like a model in a pool. Yeah. Ladders look pretty good, though. <laughs> the budget for this film was $12.7 million. It made wow. $50.9 million. Oh. So the gamble paid off. It's a question, just like the casting of Liam Neeson, it's... Like, I don't want to criticize a movie for having a small budget, uh, except when right, you have a small Letters budget. Right, because Letters of Iwo Jima was 12, right? If we're going to make that a war film, a unit of war film budget. This, this cost one Letters from Iwo Jima. <laughs> so you can do a realistic seeming and emotionally affecting war movie. You can. With $12 million. It's just you eliminate the scenes with the ships in the storm if you can't make them look good. I mean, as we get further and further from the time period of these wars, the ability of filmmakers to use like actual equipment that's still around and working 
diminishes. And I would say that this has like, I mean, if we think about like some of those crappy model shots in Memphis Bell, like this is our era's version of that, right? Like we we couldn't we couldn't have a German plane fly through the tail section of an actual B seventeen. So this is what we did. It's hard not to imagine that the addition by subtraction that you would get if you took out the Liam Neeson and that side of the story, because suddenly without all the crummy CG, you're given a pretty tight action war film without any of the downsides of what we're seeing and hearing with the with the cruddy CG and the cruddy Liam Neeson. But it is, it's the it's the Pearl Harbor effect. You can see that they wanted this to have a wider release. And I can't imagine anyone in America going to see a commando movie where it was just like some Korean dudes on a commando mission. Well, let's talk about those raids, though. To me, it's like really interesting that they all go really badly and some of the mistakes they make are really obvious. Like when they're in the hospital and they grab the bed and just start running at breakneck speed like just walk just walk like chill guys and nobody will suspect anything <laughs> like they have no chill that's the problem they do they yeah. do not have chill like, what they need is dinner table chill the kind that uh, that nurse han had nurse han is sort of low-key the most adept at the spy craft yeah they they're bad at the spy craft and i wondered what i mean this is a real team that really did these things and i assume that the movie made some effort to depict how hard that was uh and i wonder if they had any like actual training or if they're just because they're like there's that moment at the end where it's it's all the guys in a tent kind of like reality show talking head style like saying why they want to sign up for the mission and it made me think they weren't actually like trained as commandos you know they didn't they didn't have a Colonel Troutman to whip them into being war machines the way John Rambo did. Excellent point, Ben. <laughs> the, the failure of the raids just seemed so bumbling. Like the first raid to get the map bungled because the guy decided to go back to his office and they hadn't worked out a plan to like stop him. His, the, our hero's only plan was to say, wait, come back and have another drink. And when the guy was like, no thanks, like the whole plan went sideways? That's a great point because if your war film is based on true events, you have the benefit of making your heroes look as heroic as you'd like in a given situation. And that they bumble their way through, I mean, what are you trying to do if you're making this film and tell this story? Yeah, that's the question that it really provoked in me. It's like, because there's so much of it that seems so propagandistic, like, and especially about MacArthur. But then the guys that are like, this is the home team for this movie, they seem like they're not that good at it. Unless, culturally, if you're watching this in Korea, do you respond to MacArthur's dialogue if it's subtitled for you like if you're reading him is right. he suddenly more heroic and credible than the version that we're getting as english speakers yeah maybe his performance matters less in a weird way maybe he has to speak in 
subtitle quality snippets, like stuff that looks good in in a foreign language in a single series of frames. Like, I, I don't know. There's got to be something behind it. Because he does describe his his motivation in fighting for Korea in terms of that one South Korean boy that was that he found in a foxhole that wanted to just keep fighting who, uh, who I expect, expected to be like one of those guys one of the guys in the team as a younger man right cuz that's how films work usually <laughs> yeah like like but MacArthur definitely over and over made p- pushed up in his little speeches the nobility of Korean independence what was crazy to me, though, was at the time of, I mean, the, the North Koreans made their case over and over again in the form of their heroic leader. He said over and over again, we're trying to eliminate the, the bourgeoisie. We're trying to make an equal society. We're trying to unite all Koreans together. We want to have it. We want to have a unified peninsula. Yeah. And the the southern side of the argument, and part of this is because our southern protagonist was pretending to be from the north, we didn't have an equal voice that was saying, that was you know promulgating like freedom and democracy and capitalism and all these things. So we didn't get a counter side to the north, and it made it feel, the movie felt to me like a pretty good advertisement for Stalinist collectivism, um, which I don't think was its intent. The nurse is so against what they're doing when she, you know, realizes that they've gotten her uncle killed. She's like tied up and gagged in that in that uh, cellar where they're hiding out, and makes a turn to being more down for the cause almost than anybody in the squad and taking as big of risks as anybody in the squad and nobody ever like she she doesn't have a conversation with anybody where she obviously changes her mind even you know it's just that they let her go run to her uncle to try and save him it's interesting that the climax to her story is foreshadowed in the dinner scene when she's asked what she would do in in that circumstance she then watches her uncle get executed Right. The turning point in her story is that one line that you used to introduce this, like Coke thick <laughs> is th- like ideology is thicker than Coke thick. Yeah. And that and just hearing that and then watching her uncle die, I guess, was enough to electrocute her brain. Like the movie really hopes that that is persuas- persuasive to the audience that like our, our main character never articulates any of that. It's very much the same argument that was made in, uh, in in a lot of our Vietnam Vietnam movies yeah. where the North is making the larger case of unification of our people and the South is making the case. The, you know, the, the South is maybe trying to unify the Korean people, but not that's not their first goal. The first goal is to is to maintain the integrity of the South. Yeah take back all the territory that they lost right but the north is always saying as part of it's like part of the communist ideology is also a nationalist one of unifying the country 
that conflict is interestingly mirrored in these characters, I think, because much like you're saying that this ideology is making the case for itself against an opposition or a resistance, our characters here are acting in the same way. Like, Lim is page after page of dialogue. And for as much as Zhang gets to do in this film, he is utterly without charisma. He is pretty forgettable, to be honest. Like, his utility in the story and the only reason that we root for him is because he is a counterpoint to the Lim character. I was really afraid of him in that first scene. Like yeah. when when he came in, he seemed scary and dangerous. Yeah, but he but the danger went right out of him because the rest of the movie he had to stay in this uh like really really subdued internal performance in order to make him believable as a as somebody that's, you know, just there doing his job. I felt very much like a North Korean through most of this movie, feeling like this guy's doing a bad job of pretending to be North <laughs> Korean. <laughs> I mean, he has an interesting relationship with it, right? Like he came up in that way of thinking and rejected it. Right. Well, they did know each other. I mean, they did both study in the Soviet Union. They did both have, I mean, he... That was parts. Of, one of the parts of the film that I really loved were was how they slipped into Russian as a language whenever they talked about things having to do with communism. Wow, I did not even notice that. I dug that quite a bit. I missed it in, entirely. Lim I, slipped into Russian a lot. I missed yeah. it entirely too. Really? Yeah, it was cool. Whoa! I kind of had the volume down because kind of didn't matter since we had subtitles. I didn't catch it. That is cool. Yeah. Now I have to rewatch this terrible movie. <laughs> that was another way that he was testing his opposite to see if he was really. Yeah. Wow. Maybe this is a great movie. <laughs> let me let me reevaluate everything. <laughs> uh, one other th- question I had watching this was they talked about the uh, forces that General MacArthur was commanding as the UN. Was Chiang Kai-shek's government the the Chinese seat on the Security Council? Oh, interesting. Like, the UN has not mobilized a lot of, like, actual hot war assaults on things. So this was very early on in the United Nations. Uh, and it was a Security Council resolution to denounce the invasion. But it was effectively an American... And the, the UN had no actual authority over the troops. You know, it was a United Nations effort in Vietnam, too, which is why you have all these Australian soldiers and people from, you know, a lot of different countries have Vietnam stories. But it's but the UN itself didn't have any military, it didn't, it didn't command any troops. And I think in 1950, the idea that the United Nations was going to become a force, a world force, a globally stabilizing force, was a lot stronger. And I think it was events like this, the Korean conflict, where, and then later Vietnam, where we realized, oh, the United Nations is not actually, has not increased global cooperation to the degree that it's preventing war. I don't know about that. I mean, it's prevented 
world wars. The UN. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I think multilateralism has done some good, and the benefits of the UN are not ex- exclusively its war prevention aspects, but also like all of the humanitarian stuff it does. But I think that if we're talking about the war prevention aspects, like it's kept things like like when conflicts have erupted, they've the UN has managed to keep them fairly contained at the very least. I agree. I, I I'm I'm pro UN also. But I but I <laughs> I just want to say that I'm also pro UN. Just I just I just didn't want the I didn't want people to hear our uh, our chapter of the John Birch Society meeting <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> so for those keeping score at home, Friendly Fire Podcast universally supports the United Nations. <laughs> One of the few things we're in agreement about. There is no John Bolton on this show. <laughs> the Pentagon must be on Milbrack dispensing the three stoogies. Lim and Jang have this duel on the beach. How it should be, right? The, yeah. the macro of this war reduced to just two men and an ideology. This movie's like broad scope action stuff, like the ships plowing through the high seas in the, in the hurricane are so corny in in one very particular way and then all of the action stuff is that's close up and frenetic and kinetic is so corny and just how like derivative it feels like everything is 45 degree shutter angle there's like you know kicks and punches and dirt flying through the air and all of that stuff like it does not have any original ideas about how to shoot an action scene it is like paint by numbers 2016 action scenes was there one ship out there that carried all the ladders? Yeah, it's a ladder ship. Yeah. Uh, why didn't they think to drop the ladders out of a bomber? Oh, they didn't have long <laughs> enough bombers. B-29 can carry a lot of ladders. It, can't, it could, but the, door, the bomb bay doors are too short. I mean, it's right. a miracle those ladders got there in the first place. You could call that, the, that ship and its men Latter-day Saints. Oh, I just got a brain freeze. And it is uh, not from the shave ice that John and I are currently enjoying. You know what? If they had little giant ladders, those would fall right through those open Bombay doors. Those are surprisingly <laughs> heavy, though. Those little giant ladders, you know, they're part, of the, part of the scam of those at Lowe's is that they're a lot heavier than they look. Ben, is there a moment of pedantry in this film? I feel like uh, we've cruised all the way through our discussion without uh, it coming up. Yeah, I, I usually try and find like a organic place to drop it in, but uh, we kind of didn't have one. Uh, but uh, in the uh, in the early briefing scene, they show a Kodak carousel slide projector. A quick Google search found that those weren't patented until 1965. <laughs> so, Jeez. so the person that wrote this this uh, this goof on IMDb was. Watching this movie, looking for things to be pedantic about, and didn't know that, but Googled it when they saw the, the projector. Well, when I saw that projector, it really stood out to me. Because it does, it does look like it's out of time. I mean. Because my dad really loved slide projectors. And he, you know, what you're supposed to do is buy like 10 carousels, fill them with slides, and then have one slide projector. But for whatever reason, my dad had three slide projectors. He had 50 carousels, but he had three slide projectors as though he was going to do like 
a light show behind a Grateful Dead concert or something. <laughs> Maybe he was uh, showing his vacation photos in Cinerama aspect ratio. That wow. it could have it worked, right? Or done like cool overlays where people's faces melted into one another. Mm. Anyway, when I saw that slide projector, I was like, mm, that seems like a 60s technology. Sorry, bros. <laughs> The other, the, there were very few of these on IMDb. The only other one was that the uh, the watch that they give to the barber who winds up being a spy, uh, the watch had quartz printed on the watch face. Are you just imitating a watch, John? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm morally safer. <laughs> Let's talk about that barber a little bit, playing both sides. It's always yeah. the barber, and interesting things happen in the barber shop. Damn right. Major Army of Shadows vibes. Yeah, that's right. This isn't our first barber shop of intrigue. Major the barber shop vibes? No? <laughs> um, <laughs> I love Ben just not even. <laughs> His death was very painful. I thought that was a pretty effective scene, like the idea of being like in a building right next to where that is happening and helpless to do anything about it is is pretty scary. Yeah, there was some effective violence in the movie, but it but most of the violence that really was effective was the sort of torture violence rather than the I didn't feel like any of the real shoot 'em up or fist fighty violence was very real. Maybe that introductory scene on the train felt yeah. pretty real. Knife violence is so much more visceral than gun violence, especially in film. Not that I would know it in real life, but <laughs> you just know from when you uh, when you fought Sting at the end of Dune. He used the right word. Visceral is the correct. That's the correct terminology for a knife in the gut. Oh, because of the viscera. There you go. I got this new smart scale that like scans me through my feet it tells me i have a lot of visceral fat uh -oh. isn't that awful that's not because i have a high amount of visceral fat you don't want that so I if know. you were to be stabbed that's what would gush out yeah. of you you'd probably just be stabbing fat that's that stuff they get in the in uh fight club where they they throw the bags oh, yeah. of visceral fat over the fence you're a soapy guy ben <laughs> <laughs> keep the lie away from me yeah was this movie dark? Uh, yeah. Like, I, I tried to turn the contrast up on my on my screen just to see exactly what was going on. It seemed like the whole thing was filmed in uh, kind of like Army of Shadows in that when I walked away from it, if you had told me it was a black and white movie, I would have maybe not been able to tell the difference. I like how your commitment to this project has changed and increased over the months because there was a time when you wouldn't even turn on your subtitles and now you're like tweaking the color and the contrast to I, see the I film better. Exchanged, I exchanged texts with John last night before he watched the movie begging him to turn the subtitles on. <laughs> he said, there are subtitles in this movie and I was like, well, does that mean I should turn them on or not? And he was like, yes, you should. It's in Korean. Like, oh, all right, well, I'll see if I can find them. It's in Korean except for when it's in Russian or English. Right. I can't believe I missed the Russian. God, that's so clever. John's actually got, still got a VCR hooked up at home, but the screen is all in Korean. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the part of the show that I'm here for. It's the construction of a rating system. 
in the review that follows. Uh, in Battle for Inchon, colon, Operation Chromite, there's a fair amount of ribbing taking place uh, against MacArthur, specifically by General Hoyt Vandenberg Air Force Base. Uh, he <laughs> views MacArthur's plan to drop bombers full of ladders onto the shoreline with a fair amount of incredulity. Uh, the ladders made fun of. Not a great plan to anyone except for MacArthur. And so the ladder it is. The ladder is the rating system we'll use for this film. I think the ladder is appropriate because as askance as it's viewed in the world of this film, that's sort of the view that I gave the film itself. But I was smirking my way through a lot of it. And it's sad because the story it's trying to tell is really good and interesting. I wanted to know more about these magnificent 15. We get, we get less than specialties from these guys. Normally in a war film of this type, you get the guy who's good at explosives or the guy who has the knives or whatever. <laughs> and instead you get none of that. Uh, these jobs are doled out basically in the moment, like drawn on the playground sand. Like you're gonna go distract that guy, you're gonna climb the wall, you're gonna get the map. And it, none of it is associated with a specific character's set of skills. And I really needed that. I think that would have helped quite a bit. I'm gonna give this film one and three quarters ladders. Wow. Whoa. You can't even get up over the seawall with a, th a three-quarter ladder. I know. I, I wanted to like it more. There's a lot to like, but it does not serve its source material in a way that you want a war film to. And I hate watching war films where the story is better than the film's depiction of it. That just seems yeah. unforgivable. That's a bummer. I, uh, I'll come in. I'll give it two ladders. You know, I agree with you that the story is more interesting than than the movie that they made about it. But um, I'm, I guess, maybe going a little easy on it because I think some of this may be a lost in translation issue, and also because I just felt like it was very interesting to kind of see this this conflict from the a, a slightly different perspective from our own. You know, like. These were these people were on the same side as our country in this conflict and see it in a similar way, but a little bit differently. And in that difference, there's something really interesting to me. And I, I saw those differences in how they how the heroism of this squad was portrayed and how imperfect that was and I was very interested in the like religious element and in how tempting they made collaboration with the communists seem despite like what a shit show we know that wound up becoming. So uh yeah, I mean I think it's a bad movie and it's not it you know, it's not adding anything to the canon, but uh it's interesting to watch from a from a historical point of view and uh, and just from a going outside of your own culture point of view. So 
that's my review. Those are good points. This is I've wished our show had a name for this concept of watching a war film that makes you want to watch a different war film or a documentary <laughs> because the source material is so good and underserved yeah. by the film we just watched. I mean, there's nothing that makes you more disappointed or nothing that's more inexcusable than a movie that tells the story worse than just the story. Well, so the Battle of Inchon is a super important and really interesting story. There was a movie made about it called Inchon. Yeah, we just watched it, John. No, this there was a there was an, a, a, a a different movie that came out in 1981. Was it Inchon exclamation point? It was <laughs> it it was Inchon exclamation point. I think it was either one, but they actually did they did release it partly. One of the releases, or I'm sorry, one of the versions of it has an exclamation point. But it was it starred Laurence Olivier as MacArthur, but it was financed by the Reverend Sung Young Moon, uh, made famous for the uh, Unification Church, the Moonies. Famous for putting crowns on the heads of Republican members of Congress. Right. He owns the Washington Times. Uh, yeah. And this movie, Inchon... And Wacom tablets. He's one of the Pentaveret. Oh, you're gonna buy my chicken. <laughs> this movie was widely regarded as one of the worst movies in history. Wow. It had a budget, a 1980 budget of $45 million. And it earned $2 million at the box office. Was withdrawn from theaters and has never been released on home video. Wow. One of the great missing movies of all time. If we can find a way to watch it for this uh, series, I, I really encourage us to try and do it. Uh, Jacqueline Bissett was in that film. Notably, Josie Bissett was in Battle for Inchon, colon. No. Really? Operation Chromite. Wow. <laughs> God damn. Well, anyway, so... Inchon, the uh, the Mooney movie with Laurence Olivier, will always Does hold. Does it end with everybody getting married to each other all at once? <laughs> uh, yeah, it ends with uh, it ends with, uh, with like getting the top spot on the list of worst movies of all time. I think there's a thing. I think they they the lighthouse plays a role in that movie too, but maybe maybe they all get married there. Maybe that's yeah. what it is. Boy, the poster for this movie looks like a Nintendo Entertainment System game cartridge. <laughs> anyway, so this movie that we're reviewing today cannot be the worst movie about the Battle of Inchon. <laughs> uh, there is one already, and we haven't watched it yet, so I can't compare this to that. got to find this. This is a great topic for a movie, but I feel like unlike a lot of battles, it's maybe confusing to tell the story. Uh, it's a confusing story. And it's not one that's well known. And I think maybe the story of the battle is better known in Korea. So it didn't need, for a Kore- Korean domestic audience, it didn't need a lot of backstory that we did require. Yeah. Um, and all that MacArthur stuff maybe was an attempt to bring American, an American audience or an international audience up to speed on stuff that, for all we know, honestly, this this gang of 15 commandos is well known in Korea. Maybe the character flesh out stuff didn't need to 
be as clear because they all knew who the young master was. I don't think so. I don't get the feeling that they did. Trying to figure out who they were was it was very difficult online to to find these 15 commandos and figure out if they were the founders of South Korea in some way. What do you think are the chances that we just didn't get it? I don't think that we just didn't get it. I think there was some lost in translation, but I don't think enough to explain that the movie wasn't good. And I, I don't think it was good. It is a pork chop movie. If you tune out and just are there for the for the gunfights or there for the for the set pieces, there's it's I mean, we've watched some movies where it's laugh out loud bad that we probably gave better ratings to than than we're doing for this one. There's nothing in it where you're just like, oh, come on, that's awful. Well, who's Mo? Well, I'm Larry. It's just a level of like not very goodness that pervades. So I'm going to go above you guys on this a little and give it two and a half ladders, and the half ladder is one of those ladders from Lowe's that's meant to be like an all-purpose ladder. but A ladder you can make a sawhorse out of. Right, but it's like too awkward and too heavy to actually ever use. Unless you're Arnold Schwarzenegger or me, because I have one of those. I use it all the time. But I've noticed that <laughs> other people can't move it around. Oh, really? If I'm like, bring Home that ladder over man. here. Yeah. Guy who drops hammers onto his own head. <laughs> that was an axe. <laughs> but yeah, if I'm like, Adam, hey, bring that ladder over here. You're like, oh, no, I need help. Yeah, I would have taken the axe off at the top of the ladder when I moved it, though, John. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't an axe. It was a hatchet. Did I say axe? No, it's hatchet. Yep. Your story keeps changing. You know what? It's the same story. I was a little confused because I got hit with a hatchet. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're giving MacArthur a bunch of guff for his self-mythologizing. Yeah. Listen to you. What? He was a chainsaw on top of the ladder and it was on and it fell if I on was, my head. If I was self-mythologizing, I would say it was an axe. I was, I was making it seem smaller, but it's bigger than a hammer. What's smaller than an axe but bigger than a hammer? A hatchet. <laughs> uh, do you guys want to hear North Korea's review of this movie? Oh, yeah. Where did you find it? We should have led with that. It's in the general trivia on IMDb. North Korea has described the film as ridiculous bravado from ignorant lunatics. Hmm. Half of that isn't wrong. It's kind of a, <laughs> kind of a damning review. I'd love to see the North Korean version of this movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to get a North Korean review of any of my work. I wonder if you can submit it, if I could submit my albums to like a North Korean like web aggregator. You did compare <laughs> Stereo Gum to North Korean <laughs> pop writing. Yeah, Brooklyn Vegan, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but you know, they always love my stuff. So yeah, anyway, two and a half ladders because I want I do think people should watch it. It's not as it's not so bad that you'll turn it off halfway and go, I can't I can't bear the thought of this. I think it's like a watchable movie. It just doesn't bring anything new to the table. Unless you like don't know it. I mean even if you didn't know anything about the Korean War, I don't think you'd come out of this any better informed. Even MASH tells you more about the Korean War than this. Ooh, that is some faint praise. I learned something from it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's there. There's. It, I learned something about myself from it. Yeah, I bet you did. 
that you think Korean nurses are pretty? Is the Korean nurse your guy? Who's your guy? <laughs> um, my guy is uh, General Vandenberg. General Vandenberg Air Force Base? Not only because he's played by Uncle Rico from mm. Napoleon Dynamite, but also because, uh, like, what the fuck, MacArthur? <laughs> you have one plan and no plan B? Really? <laughs> I, I thought, like, uh, all of his points were extremely well taken when uh, when he would come around and MacArthur would explain what he was up to, and it was crazy. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, he's my guy. He definitely was speaking truth to power, which I know is is uh, something you do all the time, Ben. I mean, it's something I aspire to. I would never have the guts personally. Uh, how about you, John? Did you have a guy? If you're, if I'm going to have a guy in this movie, it's Colonel Lim Gai Jin, the bad guy, who has just so, got so much energy and he's a sexy character. But really, my guy is the way he smokes his cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> no no one smokes cigarettes anymore like this guy and he is so when we think of north koreans we think of them as so repressed so without individual character because their their uh rep- repressive society has eliminated all individuality but this is early enough in the in the times when he has this aristocratic flair he lights these cigarettes. He smokes them. He's getting so much enjoyment out of them. And he is so flamboyant. And I was just like, oh, let me be one of those cigarettes. Just let me be the act of that cigarette smoking. It's a thing that's gone from the world. That much flair. So my guy is is that is Lim Gai Jin's fucking cigarette flair. Wow. Yeah, his sense of nationalism isn't incompatible with panache. That's right. He's he's like, eliminate the bourgeoisie, but I'm going to smoke this cigarette like I'm in the Three Musketeers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my guy crops up in the get the map mission. When things are being sketched out, when jobs are being told out. Uh, some guy gets told to climb a wall. Another guy gets told to break into the safe because he's good at breaking into safes. One guy is told to distract the guards with his pornography. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of Nam, who is this character's name. Uh, His main source of utility is his possession of pornography (laughs) or his way of talking about it in such a way that is attractive and conversational to other people. But <laughs> Nam's specialty is porn, and he uses it in this mission. You, uh, you felt some kinship with him, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not a violent man. He's into simple pleasures, like the pornography. And so Nam is my guy. This issue is all about titty fucking. What do you think, guys? <laughs> hey, uh, also... He was successful. He effectively distracted the guards. So yeah, he was not the guys. reason that raid failed. Yeah, <laughs> yep. One of the only people that accomplished their mission. Much like I am not the reason that this show or this episode has failed. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you could have brought up more pornography. Yeah. All right. Do you guys want to uh, pick our next film? Yeah, let's do it. 
Oh, did you pack your giant die, John? Oh, I don't have the giant die. Well, you could do like a random number generator on the internet. Or in my head. This is interesting because like usually we're, you know, we're rolling this hundred sided die. So it's whatever is within the first hundred slots on, on the list. But currently we have 203 items on the list. So, I'm excited uh, to hear the Foley sound that Rob lays in as John <laughs> thinks of a number between those numbers. <laughs> I'm going to pick number 198. <laughs> Big movie, guys. We have a 2017 World War II film directed by Christopher Nolan. It's Dunkirk. Whoa. What? A movie that came out uh, right around the same time as we were getting ready to launch this podcast. And uh, I have not seen it yet, so I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that will be next week, and we'll leave it with our beloved producer, Rob Schulte, from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. If you'd like to talk about the show online, please use the hashtag Friendly Fire. We've got a subreddit and Facebook discussion groups, or you can use Twitter. Ben's on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. John is at John Roderick. Adam is at Cut for Time, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Rob's, you're going to have your work cut out for you, bro. Sorry, dude. Sorry, <laughs> Rob. But, but also, get, get to, to work, work Rob. Rob. Wow. Now, now Rob kind of has an editing Mexican standoff. You do, <laughs> which is a We're all aiming microphones at each other. <laughs> no strategy exists that allows any party to achieve victory. <laughs> Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.